everyone, and welcome to the Cognitive History Podcast, where we explain historical events in order to understand their importance. I am your host, Kevin, and with me is... Logan. So, this is our first episode. It took us a while to get here. Uh, we floundered on around on topics for a while. We eventually decided on one. And we decided we would record after about two, three months of planning. Given that this is our first episode, we would like to ask that everyone bear with us while we get everything settled with formatting, scheduling, and all the other kinks we may or may not run into while we work our way into this medium. But before we get into today's topic, I think brief introductions and possible visions and hopeful topics to cover are in order. I'll go first. As I stated, I'm Kevin. I am 29 years old from Atlanta, Georgia, currently living in Japan. I've been to a lot of countries. I've always really been interested in history. And I just kind of got the idea to start this podcast based on my interest in history and mutual interest with Logan. Um, so now that I've introduced myself, Logan, could you please uh, give the audience the same courtesy? Yeah. Um, like you said, I'm Logan, uh, 29, also from Atlanta. Me and Kevin grew up together. We both enjoyed history in school. It's, kind of the best thing to learn if you want to know the world and uh my hope is that we'll cover a lot of interesting topics that the american school system finds unnecessary i agree um i would also like to you know just cover anything even remotely obscure the more obscure the better in my opinion yeah, yeah. All right. So, with all that out of the way, Logan, uh, would you like to mention the main topic for today's episode? Uh, today, we're going to be covering the Oredo Soglan massacre. Right. So, the Oredo Soglan massacre was the. Slaughter of an entire French village at the hands of the Waffen-SS during World War II. Happening during the Battle of Normandy. So, because of the time in which it happened, it's kind of overlooked. And it's not really mentioned, like, I didn't find any mention of it until I just happened to get a YouTube recommendation. And I'd never heard of it before we got this idea. Yeah, I I wrote an essay for my final paper for a European history course on this, and my history professor had actually never heard of this. So always really interesting when you know, a published author who has taught collegiate level history courses 
specializing in Europe for quite some time hasn't ever heard of it. But so getting further into things, um, brief background intro or sorry, brief background information for the time frame this happened. Um, obviously, since I mentioned the Waffen SS, it happened during World War II. Um, and it was in July of, no, my apologies. It was on, in June of 1945, uh, specifically on the 9th of June in, obviously, Orador Suglan, France. Um, but further into the background, um, during June of 1940, uh, France was invaded by the Nazis. And very swiftly, the Nazis managed to force the French government into an armistice. And with that armistice, France was able to set up, sorry, Germany was able to set up occupation zones in Northern and Western France. And after this, um, Henri Pétain, I think is how you would say it. Expect a lot of mispronunciations. I'm not very good with pronouncing French words. I only um, did one semester of it. I didn't even do any. <laughs> but um, Henri Pétain um, fled to the unoccupied territory of Vichy and set up the Vichy government from there. And the Vichy government regularly collaborated with the Nazi occupational forces in the same vein as Neville Chamberlain's policy of appeasement to the Nazis. Because it was either appease the Nazis or more than likely be conquered and potentially killed. And as having been seen with other areas that didn't have any sort of a policy of appeasement, life under Nazi rule wasn't exactly good. So with that in mind, um, the Nazi occupation is set up and different backgrounds with the um, Waffen SS. So the SS were basically akin to being Hitler's personal forces. And it's kind of interesting the names that the different units got because you can see the fact that they were basically Hitler's personal troops in their names, which we'll get into later on in this episode. But um, so the specific Waffen SS division we'll be talking about is the second SS Panzer division, 
which is known as Das Reich. So when I say Das Reich for the rest of this episode, I'm talking specifically about the second SS Panzer Division, not the third Reich. But, um, so Das Reich was stationed in April of 1944 in Southern France so that they could be easily mobilized to either the Atlantic side or the Mediterranean side of France in the event of the unexpected allied invasion of mainland Europe, which as we all know, happened on June 6th with operation overlord, AKA D day at the beaches of Normandy. So with that happening, uh, Das Reich was ordered on June 7th to move towards Normandy in order to provide reinforcements to the German forces fighting against the Allied invasion. Normandy was about 700 kilometers away from where they were stationed. And so it would have taken three to four days for Das Reich to move all of their men, musician, munitions, and vehicles by train. But, and this is probably the only comedic point we'll get into today, the rail cars had been sabotaged by French resistance forces. Specifically, it was a teenager uh, and several of her friends that had been given this powder that would cause axles to seize up in train cars. So they replaced all of the axle oil of the train cars with this abrasive powder so that the Nazis wouldn't be able to readily mobilize to Normandy or wherever they had to mobilize to in order to provide support. Oh yeah. Really gutsy. And I, I just love the fact that it's a teenager. Yeah. I mean, Normal resistance, sure, but kids. Yeah, it's it's Hitler not being very spoiled by children. Yeah, it's it's not very often you see teenagers involved in history, and it's somewhat comedic. And I don't think these kids were punished in any way because, well, one, I wasn't able to find anything about. Uh, these teenagers after the fact that it just says they um, were the ones who caused the train cars to become unusable. Well, given the timing, I think it's probably likely that nobody found out it was them until after all of this had occurred. Yes. And um, especially given the fact that, you know, a major battle was taking place elsewhere. Oh yeah. I would assume Normandy would be a very big distraction. Oh Yes. So, um, after the train cars became unusable, Das Reich was forced to mobilize their men and vehicles across France to go to Germany. So, 700 kilometer road trip with tanks and jeeps and just not the best kind of road trip. And I don't know if these people have ever moved an army like that, but it's 
probably going to be pretty slow. Oh, yeah. Especially considering French countryside at this time. Not the roads aren't exactly good. They would have done it too if it wasn't for you vile kids. Good reference. Thank you. So during this journey, Das Reich was given the secondary mission to basically demoralize the French resistance in the countryside. Uh, the the direct order was, quote, to break the spirit of the population by making examples. And so that gets us into the uh, another portion of background information. During this time, the Nazis had a policy of reprisal against the French, specifically villages where they found out like they were either centers of the resistance or they were housing resistance members. So that kind of sets the stage for everything that's going to happen. Um, so on, on this journey, having been given this mission, um, Das Reich had also been attacked in the first two days of their journey. Um, they total lost 15 men to pinprick attacks by the Maquis, who were rural French resistance fighters. And the Germans would kill 100 French, most of whom were civilians. Always got to be committing war crimes if you're a Nazi. Always. Evil empires don't like rebels. No, they do not. So, obviously, with military units, you have divisions, and then they're further broken up into other classifications. So, Das Reich, again, was the 2nd SS Panzer Division. The notable division here of Das Reich is the SS Panzer Grenadier Regiment 4, known as Der Führer. Again, sounds like it'd be an insult. I mean, like, I get it, you love Hitler and all that stuff, but you going to name your entire division, your regiment, Der Führer? Kind of sets it up for failure. Um, or sets it up for some negativity if you run into failure more so. Uh, well, yeah. But um, like Held I was saying standards. earlier, sorry. Held to high standards. Yeah. But, and I mean, you can see here, like I said earlier, with their naming conventions, you can definitely see that they were Hitler's basically personal troops because how else mm-hmm. would you be able to get names as grandiose as Das Reich and Der Führer? Makes sense. I mean, it'd be even worse if they gave those names to themselves. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't think that would exactly be very good. <laughs> but um, so Der Führer was commanded by a man named Sylvester Stadler, 
And the first battalion of Der Fuhrer was commanded by Adolf Diekmann. What a name. Yup. It's <laughs> it, it's not the Nazis if you don't mention at least one person named Adolf other than Hitler himself. Yeah. But um so also traveling with them for familiarization purposes before the units changed commanders was one Otto Weidinger. And he would eventually become the regimental commander on June 14th. So four days after the massacre would end up happening. Um, so on June 9th, um, they had been given intel from two members of the Milis, who were a Vichy paramilitary force. Um, so two members of the Milis gave them intel that a Waffen-SS officer was being held in Orador Suver. And Diekmann passed the word along to Weidinger. And the captured officer was alleged to be Helmut Kampf. He was a commander of a different Das Reich battalion. And it had been known that he had been captured, but it wasn't really known exactly where he was. So they had been given this intel. And... Diekman was ordered to go to this village and capture a large number of hostages. So um, in or- do, do we know that um, as of now, do we know that that intel was even accurate? Was he in order severe? Based on what I can find, yes, he was. Interesting. And also, based on what I could find, um, they had actually passed through uh, Orador Suglan earlier that day. But they were so they're in... on the right trail, just wrong place. Pretty much, yeah. But so, Diekman was ordered to go to the village and capture a large number of hostages if he couldn't find Kampf there. And so the hostages were basically to use, be used as a strong bargaining chip for Kampf, which is also why he was told specifically to get a large number of hostages. Because if you have just one or two, the resistance isn't going to give up this pretty high-ranking commander. But, you know, it, if you have more civilians with the potential of facing death, then the resistance is going to care more about doing a trade. So with that, Diekman set off for Orador Suglan. It's not really known why he set off for Orador Suglan, but it's thought that he mistook the name for Orador Suver, 
which is logical. I mean, you know, there are right. language barriers between the German and French, and French is a very strange language when you get down to it. Yes, and geographically speaking, the two are relatively close. There's only about 20 kilometers between them. So, easy mistake. Unfortunate, but easy mistake, yes. Especially under the pressure that Diekman was currently dealing with, with, you know, trying to get to Normandy, trying to do all these other things at the same time. Yes, not to give sympathy to him, but it's somewhat understandable. Just trying to understand the logic behind decisions made. Yes. This, not not this an explanation portion. for decisions, but logic behind why he made them. Yes, and this portion, because this is before we're getting into the meat and potatoes of this massacre, just mistaking two city names is understandable. But what he ended up doing, mm, I have no sympathy there. None. So after Diekman arrived at Orador Suglan, he closed access both into and out of the village by blocking all of the roads. So this sealed anyone who happened to be inside the village, inside the village, residents or visitors. Um and so it's it's worth noting that most of the villagers, you know, they hadn't really ever seen Nazis in more than just passing by. Because not everyone was directly involved with the war front. Like the French resistance is a major body. And in this area, generally speaking, you did have a lot of Maquis but none particularly in this village per se. So So, um, would I be right in assuming that these villages are, they're rural? Yes. So it's likely that these people are very distant from everything going on. I mean, you pass by them to go to the major cities, you don't really deal with them. Yeah, and so you did have in this region, you had a lot of active resistance, but not as common in, with rural areas in wartime. I mean, yeah, and so specifically in Orador Suglan, there wasn't any involvement of the French resistance. This was a, for relative terms, a very neutral, non involved village. Sweet little farm in town likes to keep to themselves kind of thing. Pretty much, yeah. Um, so, yeah, most of these people, when they saw that the Nazis were coming in, they were just like, oh, that's weird. And they didn't really pay it any mind. Because obviously in retrospect, you know, any of us seeing the Nazis, oh, should probably get out of here right now. But right. for them... And also, as far as the language barrier is concerned, we can probably safely assume no one in this little village knew any German. Uh, there's actually one person who will come up that uh, 
does understand German. But, but for the most part, all of these civilians in the village have no clue what these SS officers are barking to the exactly crew taking over and blocking off the roads, blockading them, locking them all in. They're just like, yeah. oh, well, it's like a swarm of ants. Pretty much. Um, so, yeah, like, obviously never having dealt with the Nazis, they're not going to really bother giving them the time of day or, you know, mental energy that it would take. Um, you could probably imagine one of these guys just coming out of the church or whatever, like, huh, what's all these people in black suits and stuff doing here? Oh, well, off to buy a hat. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and so, and I mean, to a degree, that's pretty much what ended up happening before the massacre happened. But, um, so, and also like, again, I have to stress, like most of these people are just like, oh, well, we haven't done anything wrong, so we're going to be fine. But, uh, so after blockading all of the roads going in and out of the village, trapping everyone inside, Diekman goes to the village mayor and informs him that they're conducting a check of identity papers and they need all of the villagers to be gathered to the town square. So shortly after that, uh, the villagers were gathered without exception. They even, um, they dragged a sick school teacher out of her sick bed. And there is a man who was in the middle of getting. I, I can't remember if he was in the middle of getting a shave or a haircut, but right in the middle of it, the Nazis just took him out of the chair, brought him to the town square. And so despite Diekman initially saying that, that, you know, they were going to be checking people's identity papers. No one's identity papers were checked. And instead, Diekman informed the villagers that he was conducting a search for resistance members and stated to the town mayor that he needed 30 villagers to be selected as hostages so that he could trade them for Helmut Kampf. The village mayor is just kind of like, no, you pick them. And dominoes start falling. Uh, After he was told that he should select the hostages, not the mayor. um, He was like, oh, you making me do work? What the hell? Yeah, you you can't tell a Nazi officer that they have to do work. They they had entire camps where other atrocities were committed just based off the fact that the Nazis didn't want to do any work. Lazy. So Diekman ordered the men to be separated from the women and children. And so we'll start with the men. All of the men had been separated. And further separated into groups, and they were taken to various barns around the village. And 
So there, there is one man who I, I can't remember his name, but um, he understood German and he overheard the Nazis talking to each other. And basically he obviously caught wind of what was going on. And he Ooh. told his friends, Hey, we're all about to die. And so the Nazis surrounded the barns with machine guns and gave a mark with a shot from a pistol. Machine guns opened fire and they were aimed at the knees of the men to mow them down before the Germans moved in and either shot or bayoneted the men with killing blows. And so not quick deaths. Oh no, absolutely not. Absolutely brutal. Like they weren't aiming for killing shots at all. They were aiming for maximum reprisal. This isn't just killing. It's torture. Yeah. It's, it's torture followed by an unceremonious coup de gras. And then after the Nazis inspected the bodies, they felt satisfied that everyone was dead. They covered the bodies in straw, wood, whatever kind of fuel they could find before they lit all of the bodies on fire. Despite that, there were six men who obviously they were heavily injured, but they were still alive. Um, they sought to make an escape. One of them was seen and summarily shot. He died. Um, but the five others managed to remain hidden and they did escape. Uh, total death count for these executions was 190 men. So that's heavy, but we're about to get a lot heavier. Um, as stated, the men were separated from the women and children. The women and children were taken at the same time. And for a note, this is all happening around um, 4 p.m. or 1600. So women and children were all taken to the church, which it should be noted because Nazis can't just get away with doing war crimes. They have to do other stuff too. Um, they looted and desecrated the church before forcing everyone inside. So, you know, grab the valuables before we do what we know we're going to do which is just just adding insult to injury really um so all the women and children were forced inside and after that this is where it gets a little strange because no one can really determine what the nazis brought in but it was some sort of bomb whether it was a smoke bomb or an incendiary bomb doesn't really matter but it was some sort of bomb um the nazis lit the strings and they barred the doors of the church so that no one could escape 
the device gave a small explosion and gave off black smoke and fire. Many women and children were smoking, or sorry, were choking. Um, and so they ran to different parts of the church. And the Nazis, upon seeing that you know they were scattering, they weren't staying in one area, the Nazis opened fire on the church. Um, which, you know, summarily killed more women and children who weren't already dying from asphyxiation from the smoke. Um, there Somehow, was a single... Despite this being in church, it, um, it doesn't seem as cruel as what they did to the men. Overall, perhaps not. I personally think it's more cruel because it's it's women and children. Right. Who it's happening to, where it's happening, all of that is absolutely yeah. awful. Yeah. It's but all absolutely awful. But Admittedly, what they did to the men was more torturous. Exactly. The level of pain that they felt yeah. for their death. Although... Um, so there was a single woman who managed to survive the slaughter at the church. And she managed to escape the church by climbing out of a church window with her daughter. And when they got out of the church, they were with another woman. The Nazis shot and killed the woman's daughter and the other woman who was with them. She managed to somehow get away and hid out in a garden. And I don't know how. It must have been like a really well-hidden area. But she hid out for help for like almost, well, no, over a full day. Cause so they were gathered at six at 4 PM. She remained hidden until 5 PM the next day when help finally arrived, which is really bold and shows how like how big her drive to survive was because being wounded having dealt with a lot of smoke inhalation, your child just died right in front of you. And she was able to hide out for over a full day. Like I thought that was really amazing to be honest. It's impressive that you can overcome that kind of shock. Oh yeah. But so in total, the slaughter at the church claimed the lives of 248 women and 205 children. Total, the death count between both women and children and the men was 642. 
which is really heavy and it's a really high death toll for a single event for it to just not be talked about. It really is. So this it's after this event that really was the most interesting to me considering what is about to happen. So Diekman and his troops, before they returned to their base, they looted and partially razed the village. So they burned several buildings, collected any valuables that they could. Cause again, Nazis have to loot. Um, might find the Ark of the Covenant there or something. You never know. Yeah. You got to be looking for these weird religious artifacts that the Nazis are obsessed with. Particularly the SS. Yes. That's, that's something we could probably cover in the future is the Nazis and all of their weird occultism. But um, yeah. So upon returning Diekman gave report to Commander Stadler. And like I said, this is where it becomes interesting. Stadler reacted with the following quote. I'm extremely shocked by this report and am shaken to the core. Diekman, this may cost you dearly. I am going to ask the division court at once for a court martial investigation against you. I cannot allow the regiment to be charged with something like this. They have so, limits? So it's a war crime that the Nazis found atrocious. That's uh, not something I thought would exist. Exactly. It's at, insofar as I know, this is probably the only time when this happens. But as far as why, it seems to me like... One, he went to the wrong place and directly disobeyed orders to get hostages. And even if it had just been, oh, you didn't get hostages, you just executed people. It's, I'm, I, I don't want to sound callous when saying this, but it's one thing to execute a large number of people. It's an it's an entirely different thing to execute an entire village. Yeah, I mean those numbers compared to Auschwitz and it it makes all of them just look like you know they're trying too hard. Yeah, they 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 executed six hundred and forty two people in less than an hour, like. Obviously, like the rest, because so this incident is technically part of the Holocaust. Mm. But so like compared to the rest of the casualties in the Holocaust, this is just a drop in the bucket, really. Hardly. Well, in terms of sheer numbers, but the fact that it was so many in such short a scale of time and. Again, it they weren't even the right group of people. They they weren't French yeah. resistance at all. 
But, um... I guess you can't conquer the world if the world is all dead. Yeah. Well, technically, I guess that would actually make it easier to conquer. Less fun when you finally get it, though. Yeah, true. But, um... So, Stadler, true to his word, requested a court-martial investigation against Diekman, and it was greeted at all levels um, with agreement. So, Division Government, SS, and Army High Command all agreed that Diekman had far exceeded his orders to simply take hostages. And another interesting point here. Um, so the fan favorite, I don't want to say good Nazi, but um, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel is probably the most famous um, Nazi military officer. So he himself volunteered to preside over the trial. I know I'd heard that name before. Uh, the Desert Fox. Mm. He's He was probably the best military commander the Nazis had. Uh, that being said, I'm not very well versed in his history per se, but it was really surprising to see his name come up in this story. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of big names that come up in the story that are not you know, it's it's weird that despite that, we've never heard of this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Rommel himself volunteers to preside over the trial. But in spite of all of this, um, Diekman never really saw justice. Because 20 days after the massacre, he was killed in the Battle of Normandy. And this is a point where it's it's contentious for me. Because, for one, I personally believe in due process of law. I think everyone should be tried for their crimes. However, at the same time, I'm glad he's dead. It's uh, God's justice in a way. Yes. Like, it's it's good that he died, but I do wish he had actually been able to see punishment from an actual court. Mm-hmm. So, with Diekman himself dead, and other soldiers who were present at the massacre being killed in action in the subsequent months. The Nazis eventually dropped the court-martial investigation. And especially because, I mean, this is at the very tail end of the war. There's only a, a year left, not even a full year left before mm-hmm. Germany ends up surrendering. Um, so yeah, the court martial investigation is dropped. And with that, the story of Orador Suglan mostly is over. 
except for the fact that um, it was brought to Allied attention by Lieutenant Roman Murphy, who was an American pilot who was shot down in April of 1944 in the area of uh, Orador Suglan. Um, it was a different village that he was at, but mm-hmm. it was in the same region. Um, so he was sheltered and nursed back to health by French resistance in the area. And he had seen the aftermath of the atrocity on August 6th. He was flown back to England around that time. um, And he relayed his final report on the things he saw in France at the time on August 15th. And his, his report mentions Orador Suglan quote about three weeks ago I saw a town within four hours bicycle ride up the Gerbo farm so end quote up the road from the Gerbo farm um, that was the farm of resistance leader Camille Gerbo and quote where some 500 men, women, and children had been murdered by the Germans. I saw one baby who had been crucified, end quote. So that the end point is really odd to me. It stuck out because I was never able to find anything about a child who had been crucified. So I don't trying know. to make it sound worse than it actually was to draw attention to it, or was that another bit of... Uh sacrilege by the nazis i wouldn't i wouldn't put it past the nazis to have actually done that but and i i can't put it past an allied officer to potentially embellish what had been done either right and you know obviously i'm not trying to I'm not trying to um, go against what the allied officer is saying here. More than likely, this is true. It's just, I just felt the need to note that I personally couldn't find anything about this other than this officer's reference to it. It's not like there would be pictures or anything. Right. Um, So, yeah, that covers the actual incident of the Orador Suglan massacre. The story does continue nine years after the fact with um, war crimes trials in the city of Bordeaux, France. But there's a lot to those as well. I personally think we should cover that in a separate episode Mm -hmm. because also we're at 48 minutes now and I've never been a fan of something being too long form. 
So, yeah. Any thoughts? Um, the incendiary in the church did that also burn the women and children's remains, I, or did they do that separately? Did they just leave them there? So, uh, as far as I could find, the incendiary device set fire to the church. So it wasn't just that there was smoke inhalation that was Mm -hmm. obviously going to get people to pass out, but the device would end up burning the church. Okay. So it was, it was sort of a, just wanted to clarify since you uh, directly stated that they did dispose of the men, but yeah, it was a bit vague on the disposal of the women. Yeah, so I think the the incendiary device was sort of a two phase plan of okay, we're going to uh, basically we're going to kill them or make them pass out from smoke inhalation, and then we're going to get rid of the evidence because this is also going to burn. That also, um, when it comes down to Lieutenant Murphy's statement on the village, that would imply that he saw a burned, crucified baby. Yes. If that had been the case, that's uh, definitely going to stick with you. Very much so. Yeah, I like I said, I... I don't necessarily think he's embellishing what he said. But it also makes me wonder if, given the way that the Nazis sacked the town, I wonder if um, the crucified baby that he claims he saw was crucified on the crucifix in the church. I would say more than likely. It's it's also possible that um, because, like I said, some women and children were able to get outside of the church. Mm. They were they were summarily gunned down, but they were able to get outside of the church. So it's possible that the baby he allegedly saw crucified was among those women and children who were able to get outside of the church, and the Nazis just decided to do their Nazi thing and Mm. crucify this baby, potentially even post-mortem. From a Christian perspective, that is some extreme sacrilege. Oh, very much so. Especially considering, you know, the Nazis were in a bad way, hyper-Christian. Yeah. Conspiracy theorist, hyper-Christian. Oh yes, very much so. Probably made Dan Brown look like he uh, had no idea what he was talking about, even more so. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end it. I agree. Um, So, as far as scheduling goes, I think every two weeks for the time being, is good. Uh, it's going to be yeah. a bit slower for progressing to 
other topics, but it gives us plenty of time for scheduling because we're in two very different time zones. And almost exact um, opposites. Yes. Um, and it allows us to have ample time for both research and script writing since again, we are brand new to this. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So in two weeks, we will get into the Bordeaux trials for the surviving members of Das Reich. It's, it is very interesting and it leads to a lot of uh, controversial points. So, at any rate, thank you all for joining us for our first episode. We hope we're at least adequate. If sure not, more entertaining in the future. Oh yes, once once we really get into the groove of things, we should be able to improve our quality, improve our speech, and everything. And focus on some topics that are definitely not as uh, vile. Yes, I I don't want every episode to be a heavy hitter. No, we do more than massacres. Yes. <laughs> um, and obviously covering more broad topics than one particular incident. But we will get to those bridges when we come to them. At any rate, once again, thank you all for joining us on the Cognitive History Podcast. We look forward to seeing you all in the near future. And at that point, have a good one. And goodbye.